Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, I'm Georgine Rice. This week, the Senate Judiciary Committee pressed Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson on her judicial philosophy including Nebraska Senator Ben Sass. You've told me in private that you don't have a judicial philosophy yet. We'll take a closer look with Albert Moeller. She says she doesn't have one. She does have one, otherwise she could not operate as a judge. Including a look at the originalist understanding of the Constitution. That's very much like textualism. The words say what they mean. They mean what they say. We'll get a look at what's happening in Ukraine today in light of classical political theorists. Russia is the Hobbesian nightmare for the European continent right now, isn't it? And how this Hobbesian nightmare gave birth to John Locke. The way to produce a stable and just society is through government by consent of the governed. All this and more. I'm Georgine Rice and glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland, Oregon, and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin in the nation's capital and the confirmation hearings of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, President Biden's nominee to replace Justice Stephen Breyer, who will retire at the end of the current term. As we consider this story, it's worth noting that Democrats control the Senate by the narrowest of margins, but still they control the Senate. Barring something that would make one or more Democrat choose to vote against her confirmation, Judge Jackson will replace Justice Breyer. But the hearings are nonetheless important, and they have been revealing. There have been questions about whether the judge has been soft on crime, including cases of drug trafficking and child pornography. Beneath all of this is the question we should all be asking. What judicial philosophy will guide this judge if, in fact, she is confirmed to a seat on the high court? South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham pushed the nominee on that point. What is your judicial philosophy? So I have a methodology that I use in my cases in order to ensure that I am uh, ruling impartially. And that your judicial philosophy is to rule impartially. No, my judicial philosophy is to rule impartially and to rule consistent with the limitations on my authority as a judge. And so my methodology actually helps me to do that in every case. As did Nebraska Senator Ben Sass. You've told this committee and you've told me in private that you don't have a judicial philosophy yet, but that you think of yourself as having more of a judicial methodology. I'd like to understand that a little bit more. I am conscious of not interpreting those texts consistent with what I believe the policy should be or what I think the outcome should be. I am trying in every case that involves that kind of interpretation to assess what it is that the parties, the parties who wrote the text intended. The Nebraska senator made it pretty clear. If Judge Jackson is trying to sell the notion that she doesn't have a judicial philosophy, he wasn't buying it. And this is what we should all care about. What's going to guide this judge in her judicial decision making or any judge for that matter? I think you'll find this short tutorial from Albert Moeller most helpful from his briefing podcast. 
Now, on the very first day of her hearings, it's interesting that an article appeared in the Washington Post by colonist Paul Waldman entitled, The Two Phoniest Words You'll Hear During Katanji Brown-Jackson's Confirmation. He says those two phony words are judicial philosophy. He then went on to write, quote, the phrase, and that means judicial philosophy is a phrase, quote, should raise red flags because it's a signal that the person using it is about to pull a fast one, either to claim they themselves believe something they really don't, or to pretend that an attack they're making on Jackson is far more high-minded than it actually is, end quote. He points to the fact that many Republicans have said that what they want to consider in the course of these confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson is her judicial philosophy. She says she doesn't have one. She's actually said that. She does have one, otherwise she could not operate as a judge. And this is where you see a major left-right divide. On the right, among conservatives, judicial philosophy has become a central concern, an unavoidable topic, the number one issue in considering whether or not a judge should serve on the bench, much less serve as a justice of the Supreme Court, the nation's highest court. Over time, conservatives learned we must give incredible attention to judicial philosophy because a lack of attention to judicial philosophy is what led to the liberal takeover of the courts in the 20th century. On the left, there are some who do identify with a judicial or a legal or a constitutional philosophy. But when it comes to evasion, in this case, the evasion is going to be on the part of Judge Jackson if she continues to say that she doesn't have a judicial philosophy. Or we might say that stating that you don't have a judicial philosophy means that your own judicial philosophy is going to be developed case by case. So at this point, I want us to look at two rival ways of looking at the U.S. Constitution. What are the issues that really are at stake? On the conservative side, the word used to describe a judicial philosophy come down generally to textualist, originalist, strict constructionist. On the liberal side, the schools break down into the pragmatic, the sociological, the progressive, and the critical. Buckle your seatbelts because we are going right into the heart of some of the biggest controversies of our age here. The question is, what is the role of the Supreme Court? How are judges to operate in interpreting, first of all, the Constitution and then the statute of federal law? How are judges to interpret the words, the sentences, the paragraphs? Throughout most of human history, at least in terms of the experience of Western civilization, the assumption is that the words themselves and the structure of the words formed into sentences are to be understood as the textual authority, which is to say the authors said what they meant. They meant what they said. And so the task of interpretation was generally coming to terms with what the authors said and what they were understood to mean at the time. So that means looking at history, yes, it also means most importantly looking to the text. So the textualists are those who say, look, it's the text of the Constitution, it's the text of the law. We still speak the same language. We can know what they meant. Furthermore, when it comes to, say, the meaning of the Constitution, the framers of the Constitution in their debate about the Constitution made even more abundantly clear what they meant and what they did not mean in the language of the Constitution. That's not to say there are never open questions. It is to say that the questions are decided by the text. 
The originalists are those who say it goes back to the original intention. Again, that's very much like textualism. The words say what they mean. They mean what they say. And then strict constructionism, which means that the construction of the text, the interpretation of the text is to be strictly according to the words, the grammar, the intention. The words matter. The text stands. That's the conservative way of interpreting a text. And by the way, that is the conservative way of interpreting the Bible. On the liberal side, I use four words, pragmatic, sociological, progressive, and critical. And those are historical. In other words, if you go back and say, when did all this change? It basically changed in the 19th century. In the 19th century, many people in the United States, on the left, they styled themselves progressives in many cases. They understood themselves to be coming up against a very old constitution that was holding back a nation in its rapid development into an industrial age, into a transcontinental nation, into a far more diverse population. The argument was the law no longer can simply be restricted to the words of the statutes and the words of the constitution. By the time you get to the early 20th century, Woodrow Wilson at Princeton University, who would eventually become president of the United States, had actually come to the conclusion that the nation was being held back by its constitution. The constitution, he argued, would have to grow with the nation. But he didn't mean by that through the process of amendment. He meant through the process of judges and legislators pushing the boundaries of the constitution and exceeding those boundaries where needed. But the big change came in the 19th and especially in the early 20th centuries with the development of pragmatism. Pragmatism was not only a new way of looking at the law, it was a transformative new way of looking at truth. Rather than truth being an objective reality, things were inherently, objectively, either true or false. Instead, truth became something far more functional. By the time you get to someone like Harvard philosopher William James... It would be defined as pragmatism, meaning that truth happens to an idea. In other words, an idea is true because it works, and it's measured in terms of how it works in a social context. So out with the idea of objective right and wrong, out with the idea of objective truth, out with the idea of the authority of a written constitution as bound by its words, in with experimentation to discover in an expanding, evolving society what would work. You understand how that fuels the liberal agenda. But after pragmatism came a sociological understanding of the law, and this has had vast influence. The sociological understanding of the law says that the role of judges is to come up with judicial decisions that will serve society, taking into account not only the text of the Constitution, but sociological data. Now, one of the most famous of these decisions was the Brown versus Board of Education decision handed down in the 1950s, ending school segregation. The big issue here is that the justices turned to sociology even more than constitutional law in making their arguments. Interestingly, some of the same developments came in the privacy decisions, including the Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion. In that case, too, you had the judges bringing in a lot of sociology, not so much constitutional law. Now, there are two other words I use, progressive and critical the progressives are those on the left who say that it is the purpose of the judge to encourage, to foster, and where necessary, to drive social progress. Now, you'll notice, again, there's not a lot of reference in this movement to the text of the law, the text of constitutions, 
for that matter, that's not really the preoccupation. This is the idea of the judge making a difference for good in society. But, of course, that means that it's the authority of the judge, not the authority of the Constitution, in reaching those progressive conclusions. And you'll also note this means on issues, whether it's sexual morality or many other issues, the judge using the bench as a way of furthering moral agendas, often in issues that, of course, aren't even addressed in the Constitution, issues such as abortion. But there's more here, and that's the last word, critical. And this is where there's so much conversation about critical race theory. But the word critical in that same context first really came to fore in the minds of many, especially in the academy, under the rubric of what is known as critical legal studies. And this is a step far beyond the pragmatic, the sociological, or even the progressive, because the assumption of critical legal studies is that the law as it stands is inherently oppressive, that it is actually the role of the judge to free humanity from the prejudice and the oppression that is represented in the law as it was adopted in previous times understood to be oppressive times. This means not only denying that the Constitution is to be the authority to be interpreted just as it is written, rather it is the assumption that the Constitution itself is evidence of prejudice and oppression and patriarchy and worse. Coming up, the visions of the classical political philosophers are playing out today. Russia is the Hobbesian nightmare for the European continent right now, isn't it? The Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy believes in the calling to politics and public service. As one of the few programs of its kind based at a leading Christian university, we prepare students for exciting careers in this vital arena through a curriculum that combines rigorous study of America's founding principles with the latest tools of policy analysis. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. So find out more at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. It's been a little more than a month since Russia invaded Ukraine. Most analysts predicted Ukraine and the capital city of Kiev would have fallen in a matter of days. However this brutal conflict ends, the courage of the Ukrainian people and their president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has caught the attention of a watching world. It's also important to note that the sheer brutality of the Russian forces has also caught the world's attention. The targeting of civilians, indiscriminate bombings, and the effort to level entire cities. Our next guest sees a battle of political philosophies playing out on the world stage, a battle between Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Joe LaConte of King's College joined John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word FM in Pittsburgh. Here's Joe. Here's something to think about, Kathy. The rise of authoritarian regimes, wars of aggression, the erosion of basic human rights, a bloody civil war, a refugee crisis in the heart of Europe. Welcome to the 17th century. Mm. That was precisely what was going on in 17th century Europe. And out of that period of turmoil came some very deep thinking about the nature of human nature and the nature of political societies. Two basic contrasting visions. I'll just name them and then we can unpack it. Thomas Hobbes and the Leviathan, the all-powerful state, versus that of John Locke, government by consent human equality, human freedom, so embraced by the American founders. Those are the two basic political visions. Hobbes versus Locke goes back to the 17th century, and here we are now in the 21st century. Russia, let's face it, Russia is the Hobbesian nightmare Mm -hmm. for the European uh, continent right now, isn't it? China is the Hobbesian nightmare 
for the Asian nations, right? Yeah, so let's go back then to, I mean, Hobbes was first. So the conflict that you're talking about is the dissolution of the Roman Empire, the Thirty Years' War. I mean, all sorts of horror had happened yeah. in Europe in that time. Yeah. Um, everything yeah. from guerrilla warfare to famine to disease to you name it. And so yeah. this was a, a perfect time in world history for people to start thinking about what human nature is and what governance might mean. Exactly. Um, so talk to us about Thomas Hobbes first. Yeah, exactly. You know, Hobbes lives through the English Civil War, which broke out in the 1640s. And that was basically a contest between the king, who's trying to act without parliament, uh, and the parliamentarians say, wait a minute, we're part of this government too. And we, we represent uh, uh, the people to some degree. So it was a contest, a king trying to rule absolutely. Uh, with a, a, a claim to rule by divine right. So you get this bloody English civil war that goes on for a decade. Hobbes lives through that. And his conclusion is, you know, the only way to provide security and safety for people is to have an absolute monarch. You submit yourself to an absolute ruler, an absolute political authority, and you do not question his authority. He will make the decisions for you. You will, in essence, give up your right to self-government for the sake of security and safety. That's door number one. Okay. So before you go on to door number two, let me say (laughs) that, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't read Hobbes in a long, long time, Joe, but he didn't think that the freedom of the individual should be taken from him, but he didn't, he he thought that it was, it was the, in the best interest of the individual to give it up for the ruler. Yeah, I think that's right. He's talking about, that was his version of a social contract. You voluntarily give up your rights, your freedoms. To the, to the absolute sovereign for the sake of security. That's exactly right. Got that's it. Hobbes. Okay, so that's door number one. Talk to us about door number two. <laughs> well, door number two, the interesting thing is that John Locke, though he's much younger than Hobbes, he also endured the English Civil War. He was a young man. He was a teenager when Charles I, the king who was working a lot of this mischief, uh, when Charles I was actually executed. That's how it really got ugly. You know, they execute the king, regicide. That's pretty scary. Mm -hmm. And they abolished the church. The established Church of England was also abolished during this time. So think about that. These two stabilizing institutions in Europe, the king, uh, you know, the monarchy and the state church, they're done away with. And you have this period of instability, turmoil. uh, Cromwell comes on to to rule. Locke is, is growing up in that period as well. Initially, Locke is maybe thinking a little bit like Hobbes, but once you get past the English Civil War, once you now get the king is back, there's a restoration, 1660, and the next couple of uh, decades, Locke is now watching Europe. He's watching these different attempts to exert absolute rule, both in England and also in France with Louis XIV, who calls himself the Sun King, right, the absolute monarch sure. of France. And he's, he's looking at all this turmoil, and he's thinking, no, the way to provide, the way to uh, produce a stable and just society is not through an absolute ruler. It's through government by consent of the governed, when everyone will have a stake in the success of the government. So, Joe, take us into the present then. We're talking about Russia and Ukraine. We're trying to ask the question, as I said, how did we get here? Um, You're saying that the Hobbesian view and the Lockean, is that that the appropriate word? Yeah, Lockean. Okay, the Lockean view are at play in this conflict we're seeing. Talk about it. That's exactly right. They're, they're, they're once again, and they never really have stopped being at war with each other. They're once again at war with each other. Think about it. What have the Ukrainians demonstrated to the world? They have demonstrated to the world that Locke's vision of human freedom remains deeply compelling. Mm-hmm. 
and you have all these men and women too and others filling Molotov cocktails, willing to die for their country. I got to tell you, every time I hear the Ukrainian president speak to us, oh I get a little ashamed as an American. I don't know about you, yep. but uh, this is a guy who's willing to lay down his life for freedom. That's the Lockean vision of human freedom and human equality, government by consent. And what does Russia represent under Putin? It's a Hobbesian view. And the way he's governed his own state, it tells us all we need to know about Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. This is Thomas Hobbes. This is the nightmare. This is really the Hobbesian nightmare that Europe, back to your earlier point, Europe thought it had really tamed this whole thing after the Second World War. You know, the European Union, European community, we're at peace, economic uh, interdependence. We'll never see another war on the European continent. Well, here we are. It would demand all kinds of difficult choices. You know, it reminds me of the line from Winston Churchill, and this is the, the, the 1938 Munich Agreement, when the European democracies, Great Britain and France, they compelled Czechoslovakia to give a portion of its own nation away, a portion, the Sudetenland, mm -hmm. give it to Adolf Hitler for the false promise of peace. Right. When Winston Churchill, who was not in power at the time, when he heard of the agreement, here's what he said on the, on the floor of the House of Commons. They could have chosen shame or war with honor. They chose shame, and they'll get war, too. Joseph Stalin, the head of the Soviet Union in the 1930s, he orchestrates a famine that kills millions of Ukrainians. These are Ukrainian peasants who wouldn't bend to the, to the will of Stalin and give up their land uh, for the sake of this communist vision. So the Ukrainians justly despised the Russians for what they did to them over decades. And the first chance that Ukrainians had to break away from the Soviet Union, they took it in 1991 when it's all collapsing. And then Mikhail Gorbachev has to resign in disgrace and the Soviet Union is no more. It's on the ash heap of history to borrow from Ronald Reagan. So the Ukrainians voted with their feet the first chance they could to be an independent nation. That's worth keeping in mind. We had two great writers, uh, Tolkien and Lewis, who both uh, lived through World War One and um, saw World War Two coming on the horizon. And so there's so much. That was such a fertile time. So just speak yes. into that a bit uh, and the kinds of stuff it produced in their minds. You know, one of the things that strikes me is I've poured over their works, especially during the Second World War. Because remember, Tolkien starts writing The Lord of the Rings around 1937-38. That's the mutant. That's the Munich Pact. That's the crisis of the Munich Pact. Yeah. So the sense that war is in the air now again, that's when he starts writing The Lord of the Rings in earnest, and it takes on a much darker tone than The Hobbit. And he acknowledges this in a letter to his publisher. And he says, the darkness of the current time has something to do with it. He acknowledges. Coming up. What was seems to be an imaginary world in The Lord of the Rings is being played out in real life. More of Joel LeConte's conversation with John and Kathy when the Christian Outlook continues in a moment. Stay with us. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. Today we're witnessing the most significant war of aggression in Europe since the end of World War II. 
Now, the last World War served as the backdrop of some of the most significant literary works of fantasy the world has grown to love. I'm referring, of course, to C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Here, once again, is Joe LeConte, a guest of John Hall and Kathy Emmons. C.S. Lewis starts writing the Space Trilogy, uh, a book really about the spiritual fall of man. And so they begin writing their works, their great epic works, the Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis gets the idea for the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, part of the idea for it, of course, when the, the children are being evacuated from London because of the blitz on London sent out in the countryside of a professor, right? Right. So I think that the onset of the Second World War created a real sense of urgency among these men to get on with their callings. In the midst of the crisis, they don't just shrink away into a corner and throw their hands up. They just get on with their tasks with their Christian callings. And that's a deeply encouraging story, Kathy. You brought up something that kind of made me laugh out loud. I remember the first time I read The Hobbit. It's a charming, funny, clever story. It's an adventure, but it's charming. And then you move on because you're you're excited about The Hobbit because it was so great and sweet. And then you open The Lord of the Rings and you think, what the heck happened? (laughs) (laughs) And it's not that The Lord of the Rings isn't charming, because there are many charming parts of it, and that's what makes uh, Tolkien so attractive, is that there are such serious concepts that are so winsomely displayed at times. But you're saying Tolkien was seeing something coming on the horizon. He had already seen World War I, World War II was coming, and he put him in a different frame of mind. Yes, and he's, he's writing The Lord of the Rings right through the Second World War. And I'll I'll quote you a a couple of lines here, one from Tolkien, one from Lewis. I think the darkness of those years really did influence their imagination. Here's a line from The Lord of the Rings. The wide world is all about you, Frodo. You can fence yourselves in, but you cannot forever fence it out. C.S. Lewis in The Horse and His Boy has a wonderful line. He says, in that golden age, when the witch and the winter had gone, the smaller woodland people of Narnia were so safe and happy that they were getting a little careless. Mm. I am convinced these men have in their minds the attempt by Great Britain to stay out of any kind of European war, to avoid it at all costs. And that is really working on their imaginations. And I think through their works, they're warning against that. Remember the the scenes in The Lord of the Rings, the last march of the Ents, these tree-like creatures who don't want to get engaged. They want to be neutral. They want to be like Switzerland. Well, they can't. It's come upon them. The last march of the ends. I'm convinced that is very deliberate on Tolkien's part. England has to get engaged in the conflict. They have to stand alone, literally, for a couple of years before the United States even gets in the war. And that is vivid in their I mean, remember, they're right there. The the only thing that separates England from Nazi Germany is the English Channel and Winston Churchill. Right. Right. <laughs> right? right. Which isn't very much. And who can blame them? Who I mean, you you That's look right. at the bucolic countryside of England right. that Tolkien and Lewis both loved, and yes. you think about the Shire. Everything was so lovely. Who would blame them for wanting to stay there? But the problem is that there comes a time. And that's what that's we're right. seeing in Ukraine, that there yes. comes a time. It's it's astonishing to watch. It is astonishing to watch. And let me throw another quote at you here. This is quoted in the Washington Post. A Ukrainian battalion commander said this, quote, if you want to understand Russia and Ukraine, we, Ukraine, are Gondor. Russia is Mordor, very close mm-hmm. and very dangerous. We need Gandalf and some hobbits. That's fascinating that they see it in those terms. And I think that's part of the reason that the works of, of Lewis and Tolkien, particularly Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, continues to resonate. Why? What was seems to be an imaginary world in the Lord of the Rings is being played out in real life. The, the idea of a, 
almost irresistible evil. And the idea of innocence, men and women who are trying to live their lives in peace, and now they can't fence it out. So art imitates life. Life imitates yeah. art, doesn't it? I think that's where Tolkien and Lewis, they, they really believe. I think they used the, the genre of myth because they believe that life itself had kind of a mythic, heroic quality. Yes, let's talk about your book, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, how J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis rediscovered faith, friendship, and heroism. You wrote in there, as I remember, that the Hobbit was kind of modeled after the average British soldier that yes. Tolkien observed in World War One, And that average British soldier is very, I'm sure has a lot of qualities in common with the average Ukrainian soldier today. That's exactly right. It was a volunteer army. And so you had shopkeepers, fishermen, clerks, farmers, now suddenly thrown into combat. And what Tolkien saw in a way he would not have seen otherwise, the incredible heroism of these little people, these ordinary little people. And he says it explicitly, his Sam Gamgee is modeled on the ordinary English soldier that I knew in the 1914 war and considered so far superior to myself. Mm. It was a real humility to Tolkien and all that. And yeah, this is exactly what we're seeing with the Ukrainians. There's a hobbit-like stubbornness, and that's impressive. For the complete conversation of Joe LaConte with John and Kathy, go to ChristianOutlook.com. Coming up, trusting God in the face of all the uncertainty. The manna that God gives us for today, it's for today, and it's for today's problems. Trusting God in the face of all the uncertainty. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy believes in the calling to politics and public service. As one of the few programs of its kind based at a leading Christian university, we prepare students for exciting careers in this vital arena through a curriculum that combines rigorous study of America's founding principles with the latest tools of policy analysis. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. So find out more at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. The pace of life and its many stressors here in North America have been intense for some time. But over the course of these past two years, we've added a pandemic, racial unrest and violent protests, an election cycle that exposed a polarized nation, and inflation unlike anything we've seen since the 70s, and of course, a war in Europe. So now, many who didn't feel the need for help in dealing with stress and anxiety before certainly feel it now. My recent conversation with Jean Holthouse was most helpful. She's the author of Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. She joined me on my program here at KPDQ in Portland. Perhaps we should begin by defining worry and anxiety. Uh, Are we talking about a clinical um, anxiety or are we talking about someone who just is agitated? Can you help us understand how you're using these terms? Sure. Um, and that's actually part of what makes this so hard is that we use those words interchangeably. Yes. And it makes it hard to tell if we're, you know, having an anxious moment or someone that has an anxiety disorder. So I think about it in terms of we all are created by God to have a healthy, anxious response when there's something external to us that is a threat. So if a car veers into my lane of traffic, I'm going to have anxiety. And that anxiety is going to push my body into fight, flight, or freeze, which it needs to in order for me to react so that I steer away from that car rapidly or whatever the threat is. But it's healthy anxiety because it helps me deal with an external threat. And as soon as that threat passes, the anxiety begins to dissipate too. So that would be what we would call healthy anxiety. 
And that's not what Paul was talking about mm-hmm. in Scripture when he says, be anxious for nothing. But then there's this next step over, which we would call worrying more, and that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about anxiety. And it's where we're actually responding to something that's not actually present in the current moment. We're either thinking about things in the future that haven't happened yet, and we're doing all of the what-ifs about those things, or we're thinking about things in the past and doing the coulda, shoulda, oughta. And in those situations, we have no power to change those things, and there are places where we have to trust our past to God because he's taking care of that. And we need to trust our future to God because he says he'll provide for it. And then one step beyond that is what happens when people get a clinical diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, which is actually a chemical imbalance within the body, which is causing it to live in fight, flight, and freeze either all the time or intermittently when, without us kind of knowing when it's going to happen. Um, so there's kind of that continuum there. Hmm. That's good. You use the story in Exodus about the uh, Israelites to help give us a picture of um, of how to effectively manage our, or to develop these skills and use those skills uh, in trying to um, to manage our anxiety. Can you tell us a bit about that story, how it relates to us in the 21st century and can help us manage and relieve our anxiety? Sure. It's actually one of the stories God has used over and over again in my life because when the Israelites leave um, Egypt, they don't have, they run out of food and they legitimately are hungry. And basically God says, I'm going to give you what you need for the moment that you're in. You can only have enough manna for today. And if you try to get enough for tomorrow today, it's not going to work. It's going to rot. And it does. So every day they have to trust him that he's going to give them what they need for that day. And they can't use what he gave them for that day for the next day. It doesn't work. And that's where we get into a lot of trouble is that we take what God's given us for today and we try to figure out how we could use that to solve problems that might happen tomorrow or 20 years from now. And then we always feel like we don't have what we're going to need then because the manna that God gives us for today is for today and it's for today's problems. It's not enough for what will happen tomorrow or the next day, but he will give us that tomorrow. Um, and kind of they had to learn that over and over and over in the desert, walking with him for um, weeks and months and years, so that when they come back up to the Jordan River to cross over, they can trust that when they step into that river, he's going to give them what they need. And when they cross over into the promised land and they're going to have to drive out the giants that they know are there, he'll give them what they need. So he had to teach them that. For them, for it would took 40 years for them to learn it enough to be able to trust that much. And that's kind of comforting to me because I've lived longer than 40 years and I still don't have it all down pat, but I'm yeah. a little better than I was. Well, that is somewhat comforting to know that it's going to take a little time. God's not surprised by that and that he's going to continue to uh, to teach us. One of the uh, things that you write about in the book is living in the moment and you suggest an activity that we can adopt to help us learn to be in the moment rather than uh, projecting uh, into the future and worrying about what may or may not happen or looking back and fretting over what has already happened. How can we, what are some of the activities or at least one um, that we can adopt to help us learn to be in the moment? One of the things you can do is to use your senses because if you can't see it, hear it, feel it, touch it or taste it in the present moment, those are the only things that are in the present moment are the things that you can use your senses to observe. And a lot of what we're worrying about has no basis in the present moment. And so when we find our brain kind of off on one of those what ifs, we just come back to, wait a minute, what can I see right now? What can I hear right now? 
What can I physically feel right now? It helps us to come back to the moment and know that you're going to need to do that over and over again where our minds are not very well trained. So, you know, you bring yourself back to the moment and you become aware, okay, I'm sitting in my chair. And then you find yourself off thinking about something in the future again. And you just got to be kind to yourself and just keep bringing yourself back. And as you do that over and over and you use your senses to kind of bring you back to the moment, gradually over time, that muscle of staying in the present moment strengthens. But it'll take time, and you can use your senses to help you be aware of when you're in the moment and when you're not. Oh, that's so good. How does judgment feed into worry and anxiety? Uh, and can you give us an example? Sure. Um, we all would, we all probably know the scripture that says, don't judge lest ye be judged. And we tend to think about that as, you know, the big things where I'm condemning something or someone like that or something like that. But judgment is any time we take one of our opinions and we turn it into a fact and we act as though it's a fact. And those things increase our distress. And they increase our distress because we're either putting ourselves above someone else or we're putting someone else above us. And because we walk through our days kind of constantly grading ourselves against other people or grading other people, um, we assume that other people are doing that with us as well. And it makes us more anxious as we go through our days. And God says basically he's the one that knows to judge. And he's the one that knows ultimate truth. And we're supposed to come to him for those answers. We're not supposed to be trying to figure it out ourselves. And when we can let go of that and just accept the moment we're in and figure out what to do that brings life in that moment, that's when we can um, let go of the judgment and we can live more fully in that moment. But it's really hard to let go of judgment, and we like to judge a lot because I always kind of want to know, like, where do I rank with everybody else rather than knowing, wait a minute, I come before God as just me, and he's not judging me anymore because Jesus has already died for everything he would judge me for. So I come to him already accepted. Coming up. God loves us exactly the way we are, and he likes us exactly the way we are. More practical biblical health for worry and anxiety. Stay with us. The Christian Outlook will be back in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Christians of all people ought to be equipped to accept the hard truths of real life and even disappointment. After all, we know this world is not our home. But actually embracing our circumstances is oftentimes easier said than done. Let's return for a bit more of my conversation with Jean Holthaus, talking about her book, Managing Worry and Anxiety. You write about unconditionally accepting reality, which, again, mm-hmm. is uh, something that we can do that keeps us in the present. What do you mean by that, unconditionally accepting reality? Well, it kind of means letting go of the shoulds and the oughts and the coulds and looking at, okay, this is what's here. Whether or not I like it, it is what it is. So now how am I going to be effective rather than trying to decide it shouldn't be that way? So. If um, I have just lost a job, I can't really do anything about getting another job until I can accept, okay, I have lost this job. 
as long as I'm in that place of judging, well, I shouldn't have lost this job, I should have done this, I should have done that, well, my boss should have, should have, should have. As long as we're doing that, we're not really accepting the reality. When I can say, okay, I am currently jobless. This is the reality. What do I want to do with that? Then I'm in that place of accepting it, and I'm ready to move forward, and I'm less anxious. You um, have a chapter titled, Our View of God Affects Anxiety. Um, again, we often feel guilty if we are experiencing being anxious or worrying, but how does our view of God feed our understanding of our current situation that may produce anxiety or we may find rest in because of how we view him? In the book, I use myself as an example um, because I grew up in a Christian home um, and was raised in the church. But yet my view of God, um, I discovered as an adult, was a little off because I always viewed him as someone who loved me. But it was kind of this love like, well, I have to love her, not that he actually liked me. And it was much more that he loved me because he had to, but he was there kind of keeping track of all my mistakes. And somehow I could make enough mistakes that, you know, he was just going to kind of give up on me. Um, and that view of God then makes one really, really anxious and really, really concerned about making sure you do all the do's that he writes in the Bible and don't do any of the don'ts because you don't want to make him mad, right? Versus if I, and as I learned over time, that that's not how God thinks about us. God loves us exactly the way we are, and he likes us exactly the way we are. There's a verse in Colossians that when it's written in um, the Living Bible that was of the original Living Bible, not the New Living Bible. It says that we stand before him right now with nothing that he could even chide us for. So he's not up there keeping a list of everything we do that's wrong. He's up there saying, we can do this. We can do it. Let's keep trying again. We'll get there. Um, And when we have that sort of a view of God, then we can be much more relaxed and we can come to him rather than being afraid of him. Thank you for joining us for The Christian Outlook. For more of my conversation with Gene Holthouse, go to ChristianOutlook.com. You can get the full interview at ChristianOutlook.com. And while you're at our site, remember to subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers Charlie Richards, David Pouchon, Mike Cook, Alex Perez, and James Blend. I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. So she ran away in a sleep.